Hello, hello. Good to see everybody. How are we? It's toasty in here. We should turn on the air conditioning. <laughs> A murmur from many people. No, no, no. Um, yes, good. We got one. Okay, I'll do it. Um, no, but good to see everybody and uh, pray and hope everybody had a beautiful Thanksgiving. And now we move towards Christmas season time and again find ourselves tonight in a passage that I think truly gets to just prepare our hearts, souls, and minds um, for what lies ahead in celebrating and remembering the birth of our Savior. Um, before we do get started, just a reminder to keep. Our lovely fellowship of believers in prayer. We got a few folks with colds and other things, so just keeping everybody in prayer for health. And uh, be in prayer for next week at this time. We'll be uh, doing Israel a cup of trembling. And it's going to be an evening. Again, we'll have prayer at 6.30 p.m. And then at 7, Pastor David, Art Walensky, and myself will each be doing different teachings during that time. So uh, look forward to it. Invite friends, bring friends with you. But we really do look forward to that time together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time right now, Lord, that we are able to come before you, Lord, to be in your word and to just seek to know you more, Heavenly Father, to look in your scripture, Lord, to look in the word of God and commune with you, Lord, and just be reminded of who you are, Heavenly Father, the sacrifice and the gift, Lord God, that you gave us through God the Son on the cross for us. Help us to not take that for granted. Help us to relish in the freedom that we still have here, Lord, to be in your word without fear, Heavenly Father, and help us to continue to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who cannot do that, Lord God. Be with us tonight. Help the distractions to be put aside that we would focus solely on you, Lord, and receive what you would have for us, Heavenly Father, that we would go forth boldly living and doing your word for your glory, Heavenly Father. We love you, we worship and praise you in Jesus' precious name, amen. So this um, evening, we're going to be in Psalm 22 and recap from last week and the timing was beautiful. We had a Psalm of Thanksgiving. We were in Psalm 21 and we got to see the Psalm that is the victory after the battle. We got to see passionate praise unto God. And it was a beautiful reminder for us that we should check as our praise fervent. Because when we looked at Psalm 21, we saw the passion, the, the fire that was behind that psalm of praise and worship unto him. In it, we pondered prayer. We pondered answered prayer. And we also reflected upon unanswered prayer. And when prayer isn't answered, that searching that we have to do of ourselves. And this was a psalm that we looked at that was all about the victory that came, but the strength that came from the Lord. All the glory went to the Lord. If you think about verse 6 in that song, exceedingly glad with your presence. And we talked about how there, there's that victory that has come and the way that the war would be done. Look at us. We won. We did such a good job. But no, the exceeding gladness comes from the presence of the Lord. And that has us have to search our hearts. Is that what brings me the ultimate joy and gladness? Just being able to be in your presence. Is the sufficiency of your word, my Savior, my King, enough? We looked last week also and reminded ourselves of the spiritual battle that we're in. It's a reality. We can't pretend that that doesn't exist. We can't pretend that there's no such thing as demonic spirits and all of this. But being aware of that, putting on the whole armor of God as we looked at Ephesians 6. But not just putting on the whole armor, also being in prayer. 
That comes right after we go through Ephesians 6 and the armor of God. And we saw this psalm end with the lifting up, the exalting of God and a commitment to sing and praise the King. And that's what we are called to do. And last week we ended with a time of praise and thanksgiving and and lifting up thanksgiving to our Lord. And I encourage you, keep that going. Make that something you do regularly yourself with your Father. Lord, I just want to take this time and just give you thanksgiving. Just thank him. Go through it. Do it with your families. Do it with your spouse. Make that be something that you build into your prayer life. Thanksgiving shouldn't be something that we forget. And again, do it fervently. Do it with passion. So the charge check-in, one, we were to give thanks in prayer. How did you do over the last week? Did you take time to just give thanks to our Lord in prayer? Two, give thanks in praise. Did you sing praises unto our King? And I say it when we talk about praises. We've got a body of believers that really can sing at Calvary Chapel, Chapel Hill. So sing. Sing unto the Lord. Sing in the car. Sing as a family. Take that time to actually sit. We can take time. We have movie night. What if you had worship night? What if it was no movie night this week, kids? We're we're just going to praise the Lord tonight. Let's get some tunes on and sing unto him. And we give thanks with how we live. We think of Romans 12, we give thanks with being that living sacrifice. So that's what we looked at last week, and I just encourage you to ask yourself, how are you doing with those things? How are you doing with praising like that? And within that praise and thanksgiving, how are you doing with praise and thanksgiving in suffering? When trials come, when suffering comes, are you still able to give praise and thanksgiving, Because tonight, the arena we're going to be looking at, there's going to be suffering, there's going to be agony, but we should still be able to give praise to our King, even in the agony and the suffering. And as we work through Psalm 22, we're going to see that being done. Now, Psalm 20 and 21, we saw, were tied before the battle and after the battle. Now, you could say Psalm 22 is its own thing. I think it's interesting when you look the title with it. They're all chief musician and a Psalm of David. But with the fact that Psalm 20 and 21 have this messianic point to King Jesus Messiah, and then Psalm 22 truly is pointing again to King Jesus Messiah. It's a lament psalm, but it is also a messianic psalm. And that's what we're going to be looking at, Psalm 22. And the title of tonight's message is A Journey Foretold Suffering. A journey foretold suffering. Because we're going to be thinking as we go through this of our our, our lives to a degree, we're promised trials. James 1 promises us trials. And sometimes those trials lead to long suffering. Sometimes those trials have such agony in them and we say, Lord, where are you? God, why? Why is this happening, God? And we have to look as we go through tonight at how we can approach that suffering if and when it comes. Now, again, Psalm 20 before the battle, Psalm 21 after. And this, I think in this, we get some depth of suffering in Psalm 22. And as we go through it, I also think, thinking of where we're going, Psalm 22, 23, 24, Psalm 22 could kind of be the the trilogy of a Christ, our shepherd. And looking at those three Psalms, I, I was saying, you know, we should... Jeff, you should compose a little song cycle, PD on guitar, do a little song cycle, Psalm 22, 23, 24, just saying it'd be cool. Anybody up for that? So again, though, Psalm 22, what we're going to see is the good shepherd dies for his sheep. 
And when we get to Psalm 23, we're going to see the good shepherd live for his sheep and care for his sheep. And then when we see Psalm 24, we're going to see the chief shepherd return in glory to reward the sheep. Now tonight, we're just going to tackle Psalm 22, and I can't promise you we're going to get too far in Psalm 22, but we're going to start it tonight. But with it, it's a lament psalm of David, and it's a messianic psalm for the son of David to come, King Jesus. Now, Jewish scholars, what's interesting, when you look at their analysis often of Psalm 22, they struggle with what's presented in it. Because as you go through Psalm 22, you see the Messiah coming, but you see him portrayed suffering, and you see victory. And guess what? They don't want to deal with the suffering part. They focus on the victory part. They'd rather go there, and they explain away the suffering. But you can't explain away the suffering. It can be convenient to try to, because then Isaiah 53, you can try to ignore that then, and you can try to ignore all the other prophecies. But we cannot ignore the suffering of our Savior, because were it not for his suffering, there would be no salvation. Because he took it all for you and for me. Within Psalm 20 and 21, we see King David as a type of Christ. And remember that, because it's the same thing that we're going to see here in Psalm 22. But boy, is there a prophetic, clear clarity in his words. And we see in Acts a reminder, which we're going to look at first, of the fact that David is, is seen as a prophet. And this Psalm 22, boy, is it a clear prophecy that he gives. So let's turn right now to Acts chapter with me. And when we turn to Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at a portion here, and I give full disclosure for this evening. We're going to be walking through some heavier uh, portions of Scripture than we normally would, but I really want us to paint the picture of where we're going in Psalm 22. So rather than just throw you references that you might jot down and you may or may not look at them later, we're going to just go through them. So we can paint that full picture together. So Psalm, I'm sorry, Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know him. So here we're in the middle of Peter's sermon. He's just alluded to Joel. He's now going to the focus of the sermon, which is the resurrected Messiah. And he keeps going. Verse 23. Him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And when we see the pains there, that word, pain, that word pains, it's birth pains. It's, 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 you can think of the tomb almost as another womb for our Messiah, because that new life comes forth. Then we have verse 25, for David says concerning him, and again, now he's going to quote Psalm 16, which we've looked at, and I just have to say, with Peter's sermon here in Acts, it's the ideal model of a sermon, just scripture. Scripture, point to the Messiah. So we see, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. And this is the leading to the reward that Jesus works on the cross. And then we see in 29, 
Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. He's saying there, this psalm, it's not about the author, it's about the Messiah, it's about Jesus coming. Therefore, being a prophet, David, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. Remember that promise made in 2 Samuel 7.16. Remember the promise that we've looked at that David is going to have. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So that's his second example in the sermon, and then he goes to the third in verse 34. For David, again, did not ascend into heaven, but he himself, but he says himself, now quoting Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And right there, David proclaims and understands through the power of the Holy Spirit prophetically the deity of Messiah. Because notice, the Lord said to my Lord, the Lord, covenant Yahweh to my Lord, he is God. So he sees that, he proves that there. David understood through the Holy Spirit prophetically much about Messiah to come. And that's what we're going to see in this Psalm 22. And in it, you could divide Psalm 22 in three parts. You could look at it as the suffering. Then you could look at it as the depth of the circumstance. And there's a plea. And then we see the victorious answer. If you don't want to divide it in three, do it in two. Suffering and victory. And victory comes in one alone. Jesus, Messiah. And when we look at Psalm 22, we have to realize something. This prophecy that we're going to look at, that's so mind-bogglingly paints the reality of our Savior's crucifixion. Remember, it's a thousand years before he's on the scene. Crucifixion isn't even a thing yet. And yet it's painted so brilliantly. So what we're going to do first, we're going to actually read Psalm 22. I'm going to read through verses 1 to 21 or 22. And then when we finish that, we're going to walk through the fulfillment of of this prophecy in the four Gospels. So we're going to bathe in a little bit of scripture right now. Roll up your sleeves. Get your turning pages ready. Glasses on. If you don't have them on, we're going in, friends. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted in you, delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I will cast upon you from birth my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like 
wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. And from the horns of the wild oxen. Now, when we look at this, one of the things we have to realize, this is, one, we see David and the reality that David is the one writing this psalm. So we don't know the exact circumstance in his life that's being alluded to, but we know that this is David speaking here. And in the context of David's life, if we think about the timeline of his life, he had some moments of suffering. Think about it. Saul tries to murder him. Multiple times, 1 Samuel chapters 18 to 20. You can think about him living as a fugitive, 1 Samuel 21 to 30. His best friend then dies, chapter 31. The wrath of God in punishment for grave sin. We know about that sin that went down, 2 Samuel 12, 1 to 14. Then after that, his infant child dies, 2 Samuel 12, 15 to 23. Then after that, we have the daughter, his daughter, raped by his son. 2 Samuel 13, 1 to 22. Then one of his sons kills another of his sons. 2 Samuel 13, 23 to 39. And then we talked about it in one of the earlier Psalms, one of his sons, Absalom, rising up in rebellion against him. So we see he has had these moments of suffering. He still praises, but he has had these moments of suffering. So that's the tie to him. But now we're going to look through what we just read. And we're going to walk through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as we read these portions of scripture, I want you to see where we see the fulfillment and the tie to our Savior, King Jesus. Because again, this paints more than so many other places that you can see so clearly The point to the crucifixion. They have pierced my hands and my feet. So turn first to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to start there. And we're going to read verses 27 to 54 there. And as we go through again, really think of what we just saw in the Psalms. And we're going to look at all of the different accounts and paint this full picture for ourselves of this prophecy that we're reading that's fulfilled. So we start in Matthew 27, verse 27. And again, we're going to do some bigger chunks, but let's do it. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put on a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat On him, and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Now, as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to the place of Golgotha, that is to say, place of the skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him. 
and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they sat, sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And they put up over his head the accusation written against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with scribes and elders said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Ele, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the many things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. I think you can see pieces just in that that we saw in Psalm 22. Now we're going to go to Mark 15. And there we're going to look at 16 to 38. We're walking through each of these journeys because we have four accounts of this that all line to the same thing that our precious Savior does for us. So now we're in Mark 15, verses 16 to 38. <clears throat> then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon of Cyrene, the, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And when they brought him to the place of Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull, then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. With him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. 
Likewise, the chief priest also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And remember what we've seen with that. That's the urge the whole time. We see it starting in John Saints where it's about when we see it, we'll believe it rather than his order, believe and see. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani? which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him and saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Then we go to Luke 23. And there we look at verses 32 to 49. And we see again, and as we're going, there's an old thing I used to say to the teachers at the boarding school that I worked at, repetition, repetition, repetition. You want people to get something, repeat it. We have all of these accounts And then look at what we read in Psalm 22 and what we're going to work through. Verse 32, Luke 23. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were blasphemed, hanged, blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Write down proof, baptism not required for salvation. Just saying, going on. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly, This was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the woman who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. And then the last account, John 19. John 19. And when we start there, verses 1 to 4, John 19. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews! 
and they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus, sorry, then we're going to skip now to verse 17. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him. And two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. So you see, as we go through, you get more details in different accounts. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answers, answered, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top into one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now, there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus, therefore, saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to this disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who was seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. So we just walked through the reminders of our king. Four accounts, the ultimate sacrifice that he does. And I think it's interesting. We thought about him coming Sunday, born, veiled in the flesh. And we're looking this day, Wednesday, at his death. And I encourage you, it's not the most popular thing to say, but Christmas, Jesus is the reason, born to die. That's our savior, born to die. That's the purpose he came. That's what he is there for. In Psalm 22 shows the fulfillment of all of this. And as we walk through this psalm, we're also going to see, and I'll share some of uh, doctor research who walked through Psalm 22. And everything that's listed with that, it's fulfilled, but it's also so accurate for what happens to the body on the cross in a crucifixion. Why is it true? It's the word of God. But again, anything that we discover as man and put labels on comes here first. So now we're going to go to our text and we're going to look at the first verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Now we see before that the title, sorry I skipped that, to the chief musician set to the deer of the dawn, a psalm of David. Same idea we've seen with this title, this particular tune. Can't track exactly what tune that is, but it would be set to that. We don't again know the exact instance in David's life when this comes from, but we know from what we've just seen, this is clearly pointing to our Messiah. Now when we look at this, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? So we see right away twice with this, my God, my God, there's an intensity there. Whatever the circumstance that's going on in David's life at this time that is tied prophetically to our Messiah, it's intense. And he comes forth, my God, my God. It's personal. He knows that he knows God and he trusts God. But in this moment, he's saying, why have you forsaken me? And that why would have a hint of somewhat shock. God, you know, think of what David knows. He knows of God's deliverance. He knows of God's security in those deliverance. And he's saying, how are you, God, you forsaking me? Now we tie that to Jesus, our Messiah. Think about our Messiah before the cross. Constant fellowship with God. Constant fellowship with God. Even when the word becomes flesh, Constant fellowship with God. But in that moment that he's on the cross, there is that moment where that fellowship is no more. And when he says, my God, my God, why have you? It's as though Jesus could think, Judas, I get it. I get that one. Peter, he's going to deny me. I get that. But you, God, fellowship relentlessly. And it's going to be forsaken. But there's two reasons that it has to be forsaken. For sin and for the curse. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 with me. When we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we read, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we have a sinless man, the sinless man idea, foreign to the Jews, but that's Jesus. He's a sinless man. And the words here, God's words are always intentional. We look, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. It doesn't say that he made Jesus to be a sinner. No, he's not a sinner. He is sin for us. He became sin for us out of his love for us. And we see at the beginning of that, he made him, God made him. And we know in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.1, 1, 1. John 1.14, the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us that we can behold His glory. And what He does on the cross in that moment, that forsaking, He becomes sin, that we can gain righteousness. That forsaken is abandoned, is, is completely not there, and He has to do that because the wages of sin is death. And he becomes all sin, present, past, future, for us. And in that moment, all the wrath of God is upon him. And there is no fellowship with God in that moment of being sin. Then the curse, Galatians 3. We look at Galatians 3, verse 13. Galatians 3, 13. 
Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree is alluding to Deuteronomy 21. I'll read to you Deuteronomy 21, 22. If a man has committed a sin discerning of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which... The Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, for he who is hanged is accursed of God. Now, that's not talking about crucifixion. That's taking the dead body, hanging it on a pole, hanging it up on there. That was a no-go. Now, in this moment, we see here that Christ redeemed us with the curse of the law. There's no curse because Jesus bought us out from under the curse. Now, notice I didn't say Jesus brought us out. Jesus, B-O-U-G-H-T, bought us us out. Jesus paid it all. The hymn we sang tonight. When we think about this idea that he has redeemed us from the curse, redeemed in ancient warfare, when we're thinking about redeemed, after a battle, the winners of the battle are going to capture the defeated. When they capture the defeated, the poor ones may get sold into slavery. The wealthy and important people, guess what? There's a price for them. There's a ransom. And when they build and get that price up, they get them back. The process of that is redemption. The price is the ransom. Guess who paid our price? Jesus. Jesus paid our price with that. The curse is not there. Sin and the curse, those are the two things that on the cross, bam, he takes all of that for us, that we can be redeemed, that we can be new creations. But in the moment of doing that, for that prophecy to be fulfilled, guess what? He has to say, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? And that's not a whining, complaining moment. That's the cry of a broken-hearted child. Dad, where are you? Dad, why aren't you helping me? Look at the second half of the first verse. Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Context for David. He knew God's deliverance. He knew God's assurance in that. And in that, it's devastating and dramatic for him. On the cross, guess what? We see, we just saw sin and the curse. Jesus is helpless in that moment. Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Then we now look at verse 2. Oh my God. David's continual now, constant appeal to God. Because it's important to notice, there's, there's no answer there. This is agony. He's literally feeling like God's forsaken and given up. David doesn't go, I'm done. I'm out, homie. Deuces. No, that's not what he does in that moment. He says, oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season and am not silent. Guess what David does? He prays without ceasing. David continues to pray. He prays to God more. This psalm points to all that Jesus goes through for us. We looked at the different accounts of what takes place, but we'd be remiss if we don't take a moment at the start of studying the psalm to ponder and with the season that we're in and before everybody just makes it about as many presents as you can put under the tree, not knocking gift giving, but let's remember what the focus is, our Savior coming, born to die. We need to see what is being taught to us in these first two verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus has seven cries on the cross. There are seven cries on the cross in the Gospels. And why have you forsaken me is the fourth one. And it's the first cry after the darkness has fallen. 
from 12 to 3. It's the first one that we see. And Jesus, again, forsaken, taking it for us. Because in him doing that, we can say there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. We can say that because of that. So then in that, we have to remember, as we saw in John 19 also, what does Jesus say? It is finished. So there's an important lesson then if we think about this beginning of this psalm, this idea of forsaken. Saints, because of Christ, we are never forsaken by God. Do you get that? That's an important thing to understand. Because of Jesus Christ who took it all, we are never forsaken. God cannot forsake us. Because as believers, as children of God, because of that work on the cross that we just looked at, the sin, the curse, we, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, we can't be forsaken. But guess what? We can feel forsaken. And there's times that we can feel, God, you've given up on me. God, where are you? God, what's going on? I feel like God's forsaken me. I feel like God's abandoned me. Lest I talk about feelings again. Don't go on feelings, friends. You can't. I want to give you an encouragement and a a charge. Doubt your feelings. Don't doubt God. Because in that moment that you're saying, I feel like God's far away. I feel like God's forsaken me. You're doubting God. Don't doubt God. Doubt the feelings. Because lesson one, through Christ, I'm never forsaken. Through Christ, we are never forsaken. Then the second lesson we get from these two verses, Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and am not silent. When we feel that agony, when we feel that suffering, persevere in prayer. Persevere in prayer. You could have some suffering going on in your family, your own suffering. You could have hurt that's going on. You could be having your own, Why, God? Because that's the question. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away? When we have our why God, we've got to trust. If we look at verses 3 to 5 of this, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted in you, delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. Boy, oh boy, do we get the consistency of David again. He has that moment of agony and boom, I'm going back to the faithfulness of God. I'm going back to the character of God. I'm going back to the praises of Israel, what you did with the Israelites, what everything that took place with them leaving and the exodus and the fathers, they trusted in you. They trusted in you and guess what? You delivered them. They cried to you and you delivered them. I'm going to remember those things. And that's why right before that we can see and am not silent because he's not silent. But in those moments where you feel like God is silent, that's not the time to do this. Pray more. And it's not pray more to make what you want happen, happen, just to be clear. It's praying more to commune with your heavenly father. Men, we spoke last night with the build, pray, and eagerly await. Talk to any man who is at study if you want to know what that means. It can be a pop quiz for them. But that prayer part. And we're told, pray in the spirit. That means communing with the Lord, surrendering to his will, being in the word. That means Romans 8, 26, where sometimes we don't know to pray, what to pray, and it's just an utter or a groan. That means praying in tongues, seeking if the Lord would give that gift that you're able to pray unto him in a deeper level and just pour out to him. That's what we see there. When we're in that agony, when we're in that hurting, 
when we feel that abandonment, it's that time to linger more in prayer. Because when we linger in the, I feel like he's abandoned me, we give headway to the enemy. We let the enemy take ground that's not his. And we have a prime example of doing that. Turn to Luke 22. Luke 22. This is our Savior who gives that ultimate sacrifice, the fulfillment of Psalm 22, Luke 22, 44. And being in agony, this is in the garden, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. In the garden in agony, what did Jesus do? He prayed more earnestly. When David feels the suffering and the agony, what did he do? Pray more. When we are in those suffering, when we are in those trials, saints, we need to pray more earnestly. We need to pray more. And that's reminding us to let nothing ever convince us that God doesn't love us and see us as his children. That's the whole armor of Ephesians 6 to protect us in that and prayer. And in those prayers, praying more fervently, looking to Jesus' suffering and sacrifice unto your salvation. A journey foretold, suffering. And suffering will come, but again, how do we respond to that? It's that prayer when that forsaking comes. Now next week, we're going to be taking a little break because we have the Israel event. And then in two weeks, we'll continue this journey through Psalm 22 and we'll go through it. And it's, I think, a great one that we've landed in around Christmas time to remember our Savior born to die. And the first nugget of the journey through Psalm 22, pray more. Doubt those feelings if they come in of feeling forsaken. They're not of God. If God seems silent, still commune with him. Go to him. Pray to him and trust. And that's the peace. That's where we can get it amiss because the praying to him when we don't feel like it happens, it's like that song that I do not support listening to, Raise a Hallelujah. It's like, I will sing, I will shout, Lord, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's not what it's about, fam. That's not what we're called to do. Trust him. That's what we're called to do. Commune with him in prayer and trust. He is God. He is sovereign. He has it. So the charge for this week, one, Any area that you feel forsaken or abandoned by God? Is there any area like that for you in your life right now? Or is there any area where you're surprised and you're going, why God? Why? Take it and go to prayer. Take it and commune with him more. Worship him more. Pray more earnestly. Pray surrendered. Pray trusting. Pray knowing you hear me, God. Pray knowing you love me, God. Make prayer the default. Two, who do you need to remind to return to prayer? In the fellowship of the body of believers, we've got to have each other's back. We've got to be there for one another. If you think through this, if you think through these first two verses and pray through them and think of everything we looked at, does anybody in our precious church come to mind that you're like, you know, they're a little, they're a little down in the dumps, but they're not, they're not turning on the Lord. Can you say to them, hey, can we pray? Hey, you want to come over and have a cup of coffee or tea? And then pray together to go before the Lord. And three, pray more. Pray more earnestly. In light of everything that he's given, pray his will be done. Pray more. Because we're never forsaken. But in the moments where we feel that agony, where we feel that hardship, can we be a people? Prayer is the default. Not my feelings. 
Not what can I do in the world, not what old habit can I go back to, but prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son on the cross for us. Lord, looking through the gospels and walking through what our Savior went through, born for us, Lord, coming, veiled in the flesh for us, that we could have communion with you, fellowship with you. We thank you, Lord God, and we thank you that it is everlasting life. And Heavenly Father, may we remember the gift of everlasting life, that it's unto eternity with you, Lord, that our fellowship with you is not broken. We need not feel forsaken, for you are and you are with us. The Holy Spirit dwells within us of our triune God. Help us to not forget that, Lord. Heavenly Father, only you know the details of each and every single person's life that's here or in this church, Heavenly Father. Only you know what's going on in their minds, hearts, and souls, Lord. But we pray together, Lord, that you would enable each and every single person of this fellowship to remember who you are, to remember that you became sin for us, that you bought us out of the curse, that we are never forsaken. And Lord, in the agonies that may come and the trials that may come, that we would pray more earnestly as our Savior did before he did it all for us. Help us, Father, to live for your glory. Thank you for this time. We love and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.